Some very exciting news, Imogen Wells. According to Instagram, one of our newsable listeners does indeed have solar panels. Wow! Yeah. Get it? Yeah. And um, and then Nick got in touch to say uh, he hasn't, but his parents do. And uh, they look at it from the perspective that Matt from Solar Zero, who we spoke to yesterday, um, said to take, which is that, you know, the long-term investment, the long-term goal. So uh, we now know at least three people who have solar panels up from zero yesterday. Uh, and and uh, confession, turns out a couple of my parents' mates have solar panels huh. and I just didn't know that and I do know them. Uh, was promptly corrected by my father after the episode went out. So it turns out having solar panels is not like doing CrossFit, as I did uh, once believe. You don't just randomly insert the fact that you've got them into oh. every and any conversation you have. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering where you were going with that one. We, we know probably like 10 people now. It's a quick turnaround. <laughs> Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Emil. And I'm Imogen. And this is what's worth talking about. We have the analysis you need after last night's TVNZ leaders debate, the first battle of the crisis. We're also taking a look at the sexual assault allegations made against Russell Brand and speak to an editor about the work that goes into stories like this. Dead spider robot claws and anal prints. Nano girls in to chat the weird and wonderful Ig Nobel Prize winners. And is this the dodgiest deal ever known to mankind? It's the artist who was paid big bucks for an exhibition and what he ended up producing. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. The first televised leaders debate has happened. There was argy-bargy right from the get-go. The two Chris's yelling over one another. Chris Luxon's tax plans came under scrutiny once again. Chris Hipkins was asked once again about capital gains tax. They talked health, crime, climate, economy, and even their favourite book. Sort of, yeah. Uh, we are, of course, <laughs> just weeks out from D-Day, Election Day, October the 14th. So how did the pair of Chris's do? Stuff's chief political correspondent and newsable team and fan fave, Tover O'Brien's here to analyse with us. Kia ora. Kia ora, Kordua. Nice to talk to you. Golly. Nice to talk to you. What did you make of it? W- was there a clear winner to your mind? No, is the answer to your question. I'll, I'll explain my, my workings. I'll go backwards on my workings. So they, they got off to a hiss and a roar. It was a bit bloody shouty, actually, wasn't it, in that first segment, which had me worried for the state of things. Um, and it put paid to what we've been hearing from Chris Hipkins uh, in the lead-up to the debate about how it was going to be a great opportunity to finally dig into policy. And instead, we just had these two dudes just yelling at each other. I couldn't discern the policy, could not discern the discussion. Um, then things settled down going into the second break. Thank goodness, felt a bit like Jessica Much McKay maybe hosed them down, shoved a chill pill in their, in their gobs, um, and then kind of we, we got into the proper tenor of the debate. I think Chris Hipkins let things slide a bit much. He toned down that kind of scrapper that we'd seen on the campaign. We'd even seen an attack ad put out by Labour about what a National Act government would look like in the lead up to the debate. But then he toned that right down in the debate and perhaps let too much slide. And if you'll just humour me, I did score each of the rounds. The first round was a, a draw. Second was a tie. Crime, the third section, went to Luxon by a whisker. Health to Hipkins, again by a whisker. A draw on co-governance. Luxon took housing. Hipkins got climate. Adding that all up, it was a draw. 
and a draw would normally be a draw, but given Hipkins so desperately needed a win, he desperately needed to knock this one out of the park. Luxon will chalk this one up as a win of sorts. Tova, did we learn anything new across the hour and a half? I didn't, um, but I'm political tragic, and and you two as well have been following the campaign (laughs) doggedly as well. So we've got to remember that there are so many undecided voters out there. There are so many people that will be watching this debate. It might even be the first time they've kind of tuned into the campaign at all. Um, And so for them, it's a really good kind of cliff's notes of of policies. You get the measure of the leaders. You get to see uh, what your future prime minister is like under, under pressure. I thought that both of the Chris's really leaned into their lines but I think for some voters it's a good head-to-head you get to kind of get a sense of of where they both stand on on policies and that those were the bits of the debate that that shone for me as well when Chris Hipkins and Chris Luxon really went kind of toe-to-toe it was a bit more of a ping-pong match on on policy Uh, and that's where you can see holes picked apart you can see courage of convictions you can see uh, where strengths are and where weaknesses lie and so those were the better bits of the debate and I think voters will take 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 away from that. So we're focusing on sort of individual performances, and you alluded there to, you know, the lack of spontaneity, I guess, in the debate. You know, this is something that people have talked about with regard to Chris Luxon quite a lot, sticking on message, you know, reframing questions to um, stick to the lines. What did you make of him last night? Was he able to riff more comfortably, do you think? Not really, because that that is him through and through. And, and actually, it's interesting because earlier on in his leadership, when I used to interview him quite a lot, it was the opposite. He was making policy up on the hoof constantly. He was always getting himself um, in, in trouble, uh, just verbal um brain farts oftentimes that he shouldn't have been making um, on live radio. But he's so whipped into shape on campaign. He's so match fit for the campaign. Doggedly sticks to his lines. There were a couple of little, I gave him points for evocative personal anecdotes. There was a story in there about when he and his wife bought their first house. They were 24 years old. He was 24 years old. They had a deck chair between them. They were watching Tally sitting on a box as interest rates were soaring and, and he found that a bit scary. So there were tiny little insights maybe into Chris Luck and the man, which is something that's probably been missing. Turning to Chris Hipkins now, he had many a question directed to him about uh, Labour Party promises that haven't been realised in these last six years of being in power. Was he able to convincingly excuse those failings and subsequently, I guess, convince people to stick with Labour? That is the essence of this election, isn't it, Mo? It's like it mm. comes down to a fight between Labour's record on things and whether you believe that it's going to improve or whether you believe they did a good job. And it comes down to whether or not you believe that National will be able to make good on its promises. I thought on some things, Hipkins able to defend Labour's record on housing, perhaps better than I'd uh, expected, and on on health as well. I think with mental health, you know, the one point nine billion dollars spend that was kind of a great line of questioning. And it did take too long, and he conceded that, but he did make the point that they were building something from nothing. Tova O'Brien, Stuff's chief political correspondent, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Now, we would like to know a really important question from you folks. Um, would you use a butt-scanning toilet but like bum. for the sake of science? Bum, bum scan. Like right, right up, <laughs> right up there. <laughs> Uh, the reason that we asked that will become clear <laughs> later in the episode. Uh, but do let us know. You can find us on TikTok or Instagram. Just search up Newsable NZ. And uh, you can also send us an email if you would like to <laughs> justify your decision uh, or, or weigh up the considerations. You can flick that to newsable at stuff.co.nz. 
In the wake of days of media reporting about allegations against the British actor and comedian Russell Brand, the police have received a report of an alleged sexual assault from 2003. However, they haven't started an investigation yet. Now, the initial allegations of sexual abuse involving four other women surfaced at the weekend after an investigation carried out by the Sunday Times, The Times and Channel 4 that had been underway for four years. Russell Brand has denied these allegations. The rape, assault and emotional abuse is alleged to have happened between 2006 and 2013 when he was at the height of his fame working for the BBC, Channel 4 and starring in Hollywood films. In a YouTube video published the night before the joint investigation was published, Brand said the investigation was an attempt by the mainstream media to smear and silence him. Midst this litany of astonishing, rather baroque attacks are some very serious allegations that I absolutely refute. These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies. And as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. A reminder that Brand has not been charged. But these accusations surface after an incredibly long investigation, and few people know more about the process behind that than Kelly Dennett. Kelly is the Post and Sunday Star Times assistant editor, and she's published extensively on this topic. She's here now to chat a bit about that process. Hello, Kelly. Hello. Tell us, first of all, when a story like this breaks or gets published... What goes through your head, both as a consumer of news and as a person who has written on this subject before? Yeah, you know, I was reading the Times investigation and I was thinking, I bet those journalists have read this story a thousand times. They've gone through it line by line. They'll probably be reading it again after it's been published. Your mind never stops working once it's out. You're still rereading it and still kind of waiting for the next part to begin, really. And how long does a story like this take to get over the line? There must be so many things that go on behind the scenes before publishers hit, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in this case, it's obviously been years in the making, which is a really long time from a journalism point of view to be working on one particular story, which I think really signifies how much work they've done and what a huge story this was and how important it was to the publishers as well. They've got a really detailed timeline actually on their website. They've shown you how they've investigated it, where the sort of allegations first came up, how they sort of started looking into it and how it all unfolded. Kelly, tell us a bit about the the risks and considerations that are involved with stories of this topic, both legal but also in terms of the duty of care to the people that that, that you are talking to? I mean, the obvious risk legally is defamation, and I'm sure they'll be wondering what action, if any, Russell Brand would be taking. I'm also positive that they would have dotted their I's and crossed their T's and all of this. So there is the legal risk, but in terms of the fallout for the victims and process like this, going back to your question about how long this kind of takes, a lot of it is talking through with the people who've come forward about the process, what's going to happen now, what are some of the implications of publication, what possible consequence could there be for them legally, will they be named, who else is going to find out about this? And so it's sort of talking them through that, getting them, I guess, on board. Kelly Dennett, we really appreciate your time and thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you. 
we're still going to talk about the magical and slightly criminal world of avant-garde art. But just while you're here, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, please do check us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. Not only does it mean you'll always be up to speed on what's worth talking about, you'll warm our hearts. That's nice. It's quirky science time. It's quirky science time, my favourite time of the day. Uh, and uh, the reason that it is quirky science time is because reanimating a dead spider's legs into robot claws and licking rocks and toilets that scan for anal prints have all just won Ig Nobel Prizes. Now, the Ig Nobel Prizes you may have already figured out are not your traditional Nobel Prizes. These are awarded and given out for achievements that first make people laugh then make them think. That is a direct quote. So here to talk us through some of our faves is Nano Girl, the wonderful Michelle Dickinson. Kia ora, welcome to News of All. Kia ora, thank you for inviting me to talk about my favourite time of year. <laughs> now, why would there be any niche for someone to take a dead spider's leg and turn it into a robot claw. And just quickly, for those who need a bit of a prompt here to picture it, they've essentially turned spiders into those things you get at gift shops that have a plastic dinosaur's head on one end of a stick that you can open and close with a clamp on the other end. Why? Mostly because scientists just always ask questions. And literally, a scientist at Texas Rice University went into the lab and looked at a dead wolf spider on the floor in their lab and went, oh, isn't that weird that it's all curled up? I wonder why that is. And it's because... Spiders' biomechanics works through hydraulic pressure, so they're always usually under pressure, which is why their legs are out. In this case, it was all curled up because it was dead and their fluid wasn't pushing out anymore. And they're like, I wonder if we can push that spider open. So they did. They <gasps> pumped some air into the corpse of this spider and its legs went pew and opened yeah. back up. And they're like, oh, yeah. that's cool. I wonder if we can keep doing that. And they did out dead spider going, a little bit of a leg dance. And they're like, hmm, I wonder how strong this dead spider is. So then they attached it to a probe, put air in it, and got the dead spider to pick up objects. Just like you said, just like those games you get where you never win a cuddly toy and you throw all your money in. Um, mm. And they're like, what else can we do? And they're like, I wonder if we can turn on a light switch in this oh, dead spider. No. And they did. Michelle, you did a very good job of making that all sound very reasonable and um, esteemed and academic. So I challenge you now to do the same with the words anal printing, please. I love this so much. Did you know? Yeah, I don't know how many buttholes you've ever looked at, but <laughs> the creases around your bottom hole are unique to you, meaning just like your fingerprint identifies you, somebody sticks a camera close to your bottom, they would know if it was you based on how many creases you have. Very useful for this next invention, um, which could save your life, actually. It's a smart toilet. They've put cameras in there, and the cameras do one of two things. First of all, if you have a poo, it'll scan your poo and decide whether your poo is normal or if you should go see your doctor. It can be an indication of bowel cancer, irritable bowel syndrome. Also, it has a dipstick that tests your wheeze for glucose to see if you're diabetic. But how, you may ask, will it know if it's your poo versus somebody else's poo? Because if you have a toilet where there are multiple users... It needs to correlate your type of stool with somebody else's. Well, that's where your anal print comes in. The camera is loaded with AI so that it can analyze your bottom print with somebody else's and correlate your typical poos with somebody else's to make sure that it's not going to give you a bad diagnosis because it's based on somebody else's toilet habits. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm speechless. <laughs> um, and like you did with the spiders, you have then just perfectly explained why an anal printing toilet could and should actually be used because that's the whole point of these awards, right? They're scientific experiments, inventions, studies, discoveries that sound ridiculous but actually could serve a real-life purpose. Totally. The, the whole award is designed for science that makes you laugh and then think, and I think both of them have done that. Michelle Dickinson, what a joy to chat to you about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Thank you so so, so much for joining us. Hey, Chris. Yes. Do you want another very broad question? I've got a very broad question today. Go on, then. What do you know about sports? Up the wires, go the Black Caps, and don't forget Premier League football. Oh, you do love a bit of Premier League footage, do. don't you? What team is it that you support again? Oh, the current champions, Manchester City. I think they're pronounced Arsenal. It's pronounced Arsenal. Uh, but you know what's good about football? Yeah, what? They don't regulate soccer. I'm sorry, there's a sport that regulates sock height? Indeed there is, and it's cycling. That's very strange. Why on earth do they regulate it? Well, I know, but if you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the Big Stuff Quiz, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Oh, that's a cliffhanger indeed. The Big Stuff Quiz is brought to you by Melbourne Every Bit Different. As you all know, we're an extremely high-culture podcast here at Newsable. High culture only, aren't we, Emil? Je suis fancy. Bonjour. We like to keep an eye on movements in the wonderful world of avant-garde art pieces, and we came across a crackerjack one today from Denmark. A bloke called Jans Harning is at the centre of this. Jans is a conceptual artist whose work focuses on powers and inequality. Whatever that means. Artist. That's how you can tell it's avant-garde. High culture. (laughs) Harning is famous for a piece he did back in 2007 called An Average Danish Annual Income, where he took uh, the equivalent of an average Danish annual income in cash and fixed all of those banknotes to a canvas and then uh, put it in a frame. Good social commentary stuff, I guess. Mm. Now, in 2021... He was given about $120,000 by a Danish art museum to recreate that piece. The problem came along when it was time for him to deliver that piece to the museum. So the boxes arrived and the directors opened them up and um, they found a couple of empty frames and a title for these empty frames, which was Take the Money and Run. <laughs> the museum tried to recover the funds from Harning. It claimed that... Like, is it is it theft? <laughs> it's theft. Is it theft? Well, it's art. But... It actually was the art, right? And that's what he's saying. The act of stealing the money was the commentary on power and inequality that characterises his work. But did he hit the brief might be the argument. It's thought-provoking, and, and it's profound, I suppose. Anyway, the museum did actually display the empty canvases at an exhibition <laughs> by that name, and it did really, really well. I would go and see that. I quite, I like this. It's great, yeah. Uh, but it also still wants its money back, kind of. Uh, and yesterday, it finally got its wish, with a court ordering Harning to return the money, minus an artist's fee and some expenses. Harning himself was philosophical. He said, hey, it was for the good of the museum. It was good for my profile. Everyone's a winner. Yeah, I guess the lesson from this is that crime does pay. Um, and on that somewhat anarchic note... That's Newsville for today. I'm Neil Donovan. And I'm Imogen Wells. Don't do crime. Don't do it. Newsable. 
news that's worth talking about. If you liked it and reckon it's also worth supporting, please make a contribution at stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.